Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at CapitalAllocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Sean Arp. Sean Arp is the Chief Operating Officer of the University of Wisconsin Foundation. Sean oversees all investment operations, analytics, reporting, technology, personnel, and strategic initiatives. Prior to joining Wisconsin in 2022, Sean spent eight years at Washington University in St. Louis Investment Management Company, where he served as Chief Operating Officer. Before WashU, he was the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Compliance Officer at Temujin Fund Management and a Director at Thales Fund Management. Our conversation details how investment operations work on an endowment, and we also discuss collaboration with the investment team, operational due diligence, technology, the importance of peer networks, and governance. Please enjoy my conversation with Sean Arp. Well, Sean, it's great to see you. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Tell me about your background and how you got to Wisconsin. A little bit of a, a long route. Started uh, in New York, fresh out of University of Iowa Literature, Science, and the Arts program. Got a job at a brand consultancy where I worked on a Quest Communications account. And within eight months, the lead of the account went to a private equity shop and I followed. And I was just the gopher running term sheets around town in the late 90s. Didn't know a thing about private equity or the hedge fund world or any sort of asset allocator world, that's for sure. But figured it out on the run, joined a hedge fund a couple of years after that, and was on the buy side till about a decade ago. So a couple decades on the buy side as an operator, basically a jack of all trades, except for doing anything on the portfolio side. I was, like I said, I ran term sheets around. I learned accounting on the job. I dealt with all the the, uh, service providers. I got into business development. I had a great interest in the portfolio, what we were doing, like to go on the road, talk about it. And actually the way I became acquainted with the asset allocator side of the table was through those meetings where I would go and talk about our portfolio and either hoping to raise money or talking to 
investors, I'd always find time in the conversation to ask them what they were doing in their portfolio outside of what I was talking about. It's fascinating, especially these endowments foundations with one client, kind of forever money, really able to do everything on the spectrum. When the opportunity came to take a look at a career change, basically, I like being an operator as opposed to a salesman. And I was thinking about those offices that I visited and kind of wondering, like, they seem lean. They don't have a lot of people there. How are they managing all this money? And having done everything about supporting a business on the buy side, had an inkling that there was probably a good deal of transferability, what I did on the operations side to the asset allocator side. So I set my sights there and found WashU again about 10 years ago and built up operations, kind of had a rethink for them about how they were going to do things and had a couple versions of our uh, operations program there. And from there, one of the senior managing directors became the CIO up here in Madison. And I followed him and building out something similar. Just take a step back and give an overview of Wisconsin and how big it is. The team, the governance. The University of Wisconsin-Madison Foundation has an endowment in the endowments, a little north of $4 billion right now. And we also oversee some working capital or short-term pool of about a billion. So it's a roughly $5 billion under purview of the investment office here. It is structured as a foundation, which is slightly different than a private endowment, but operates similar to a, what think of as a true endowment as opposed to a foundation. And what does that mean? What's the distinction in your mind from an endowment to a foundation? In this case, it is literally a legal structuring where there's a private foundation set up that is legally separate from a public institution so that it can operate according to its benefactors' wishes and not have any government involvement in how the money's managed and or spent. So there are several examples amongst the bigger public schools that have set up these separate private foundations to house their endowment assets and also their fundraising. Does that have implications around FOIA? It does. Absolutely. It does help with the uh, privacy aspect that some GPs are sensitive to with respect to what LPs they allow into their funds. Though, Wisconsin has an interesting tidbit. The uh, State Investment Board, SWIB, which has $100 billion plus, they were able to lobby the state legislature to basically keep private their investment roster so as to allow them to have access to some of the private investments that are sensitive to such FOIA requests. So it's kind of interesting. It is different than what I was used to when I was at WashU, which is there is an investment management company by title there. It's under the legal umbrella of the university, one institution. Here at Madison, a foundation is legally separate from the university. So how big is your team? The investment office is currently 14 and eight on the investment side, including analysts and the rest on the operations side, including myself. It's an interesting structure. We are a generalist shop. So even identifying the team as investments versus operations is really the only classification that we have for the team. Many of the asset allocators are structured according to there's real estate or privates team or venture capital team or publics. Now maybe fixed income again. But the model that we follow is one of generalists where it's, even though we do have those distinctions and asset class hierarchies, the expectation is everybody on the team is pulling for one portfolio and all opportunities kind of compete against other opportunities 
for investment dollars. So being aware of everything in the portfolio is kind of the core, the structure of the team. And that flows over to operations too. I don't have a team just devoted to looking at privates and dealing with only capital calls versus those on the public side. We mix it up and cross-train across all different types of investments, structures, and so forth. So it really is trying to get everyone to be comfortable with the whole portfolio. And that is indeed a hard thing to do with these types of forever money portfolios where you have such radically different timescales within the portfolio itself. And part of what's fun about ops is trying to harmonize or at least find a common denominator, which you can put the portfolio together in a way that can be managed effectively and best information and harmonized across metrics that make sense. And is that general approach pretty common with groups that are smaller in size? I don't know what it is these days, but certainly from zero to a billion or two billion, you know, it's a pretty lean shops. I think once you get north of three, nearing five, assuming the intention is to compete against elite endowment peers, the staffing jumps by an order of magnitude and really has to if you want to compete for and against the best. So once you jump to a certain level, let's say roughly where we're at, you're big enough to matter to the GPs, but still nimble enough to do some interesting things. You kind of have to staff like them. And from the point of where we are to two, three, four times the asset size, I don't think there's a lot of growth in terms of the staff that needs to occur to support that's very leverageable business. But at some point, if you're going to be on that playing field, you've got to jump up and have not only investment staff, but operational support to manage the portfolio in that fashion. Let's talk more about collaboration. Tell me more about what that looks like with other endowments. Oh, yeah. Especially on the operations side. The role, I think, of heading up operations for this type of portfolio of assets is not one where any of us could be an expert or have been trained in all areas. So those of us in the position have come from different roles, sometimes legal, sometimes audit, sometimes accounting, sometimes buy side. I've seen more buy side operations folks come into positions over the years. I think a key attribute is being able to fill gaps and find experts where your own skill set or experience is lacking or something new and novel comes up. And our peer set is almost naturally inclined to gravitate to each other because we're spread so wide across the operational functions that just being able to plug into a network where you can get the benefit of, I've seen it, or just corroborating silly things that not even remotely proprietary, just saves a ton of brain damage. When you come into the seat, it's just a fire hose and being plugged into a group like that, there are a lot of people that literally save your life over and over. And after you've had that experience, you want to pay it back. And so there you are able to do so when someone else comes into a chair. It's a unique professional group. And I feel lucky to have that group and have fallen into it. Uh, great set of people. We try to uh, get together once a year, just the serendipity around being together for a day or two, talking about what everyone's doing. It's great. And what's on people's mind today? That's a good one. Obviously, the banking thing was big time. I think technology is always on seemingly various stages of technological adoption or migration. Never any fun for people that are understaffed, don't have the support to uh, dedicate fully to any sort of implementation or transition. You know, imagine you're working on weekends and nights just to get your normal job done. And oh, that time-saving thing that 
is going to occur once magically things get into place. Having been through several technological implementations, like taking data from closets and getting it structured in a way that can be useful, it just takes a lot of time, force, focus. But once you get there, it changes things big time. I think everyone's always looking for ways to leverage any sort of technology or latest vendor to make the process more efficient. We're just receiving a lot of information. I mean, something like a Wisconsin portfolio, the line items that are of investments when you have a decent privates book, it's hundreds and hundreds. I mean, there's 300 line items here. I imagine five, 600 with big legacy privates portfolios. They're pumping quarterly information to you at a minimum. That is just a lot of data coming in, not uniformly. How do you synthesize all that? What does your tech stack look like to manage all those line items? I've utilized front ends or UIs to enter data. The bottom line is it's more about selecting one vendor that works for you and getting on with it and really making your process concrete and detailed through whatever medium. So basically a place to get data into your world. Then it's identifying the data that is core to your portfolio management needs. And we actually have a data warehouse that takes, pulls data from that front-end system where a lot of anything from notes to manager information to AUM to estimates to returns, you name it, currency exposure, da da da. That's pulled into a data warehouse. We supplement that with market data from Bloomberg feeds, S&P feeds. And currently what we're doing at Wisconsin is using Power BI to build a suite of portfolio management tools that reflect that information as best we know, as fast as we know it, reflects this to the, everyone on the team so that their eyes are on the same thing, best information. They aren't spending their time trying to query this, that, or the other. Certainly ad hoc stuff we have to respond to, but to the extent a question is asked and we think the question can be asked again, we try to build that into our BI tool. The great thing about this is when we make a mistake, everyone's eyes on it. Like, that's crazy. And of course, operations is to blame there. I snicker because being on the operations side, it's all these small, small victories. It's akin to the air traffic control. No one's giving you a high five every time a plane lands. But something goes wrong, suddenly you're the focal point. So for the 999 things that go right, really the only thing that we get attention for is the one thing that goes wrong. Not complaining, just the world of ops. Do you have technology staff in-house to handle all that? The foundation does have enough tech support to provision what we need. Actually making it work for us, we engaged an external consultant, had him help get us off the ground, but we're training up staff to be able to run, to update, and make relatively easy changes, not wholesale. So it's a bit of combination in-house and external. The thing that's so important about this from an operations perspective is almost kind of doesn't matter. You can always go get a consultant to do something. It's really about whether your organization can really detail what it wants. Like, I like shiny things. I like marketing slicks about new uh, products. And yeah, I want it to look like that. The shadowed bubbles, like, oh yeah, it looks great. I have no idea what the details are. Once you get past that initial meeting, getting the data structured and actually identifying what it is you are wanting to look at, that is 
land combat. It's a lot of work. It's relentless attention to detail and persistence in answering outstanding questions. How do you get people to think about separating the shiny versus what's really needed? That's an internal struggle. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right? It's communication. I think when you have the right culture in place from top down where there's an understanding, appreciation of what everybody brings to the organization, I think the communication and dialogue can be great. Operations look at things as a support role. What do you need? And the question is not what do you need because we're annoying or we're bored, but it's like, what do you need? And on the investment side, it's easy to be dismissive or just say whatever, just figure it out. Appreciating how difficult things are. And I think it's an iteration of understanding that details matter. And I think once you realize your life is better, once you get things clear, it's an active listening and iteration on things. I think it's key for the head of operations to have a really good relationship with the senior investment team to be able to make sure that needs are being met and constantly recalibrating. Is this good for us? For operations, if you don't have an appreciation for what it's like to make investment decisions, it's going to be hard for you to make those calls or be sensitive to that. It sounds like you cover a lot of ground. Yeah, it's fun. Where do you get your hands dirty in the deal cycle? We have weekly meetings with the investment team where we go through pipeline. You get a sense where things are looking like they're warming up. Once we get documents and get an indication from the team that we've moved into full-scale diligence, we'll start asking questions about how serious so we can get into operational due diligence scheduling and so forth. One of the things that we do at Wisconsin is we try to be proactive and we're looking to take advantage of opportunities that can present themselves. Sometimes that's very short order, so we have to be on the ball and reprioritize things. And we're often surprised, but generally... When there's a reasonable degree of certainty that an investment is likely to be made, we start running pretty hard. What does the process look like once you start running hard on a particular investment? We have a couple of resources so that if anybody gets too busy, you have another place to turn to. Sometimes there's specialties at one firm versus another. I've been at this a long time. A lot of investments we make are with managers we're already with, and they're derivatives of products that we've invested in. So there's some mix of like seen it and no 95%. Here's something to look at. We'll send that out to council versus, and then it's all the way to like things that we're entertaining a structure that has elements that I've never, ever been involved with. So it's completely brand new to me. We've spent lots and lots of time with external council on. So what I try to do is utilize that resource as efficiently as possible, given that on that front, you could be a price taker or a price setter, a term taker, a term setter. Where do you fall in that stack? Really, we're asking ourselves, is material what stands out to us as something that is a risk that we want to mitigate or address or at least run by a third party? And we really try to prioritize a ranking of things we want them to do for us on any given deal. It's just important to have a good uh, rapport going with external counsel, right? So you can kind of almost speak shorthand when you're in a pinch and when you say, hey, what bothers us here? They know what you mean. And what are those things? Things that affect liquidity and fees, to me, just are always first. How much are we paying? What frequency? And then transparency is the other thing. One thing that we try to keep in mind up front while doing legal review and onboarding is like, this is the time to level set expectations. Investment team, we kind of almost 
recheck everything that the investment team has told us via their approval memo draft. We're really checking that and then getting it recorded in our system so that when the time comes, we should have a place to go. And it's not the docs. I don't want to go to the docs again. I go to the docs when you have a real problem. I want to be able to ask, hey, where are wires going today? We see who the wiring place is. We know who the auditor is. We know what the key man clause is. And we know what the cure is and, and so on and so forth. It's just a chance to really get yourself organized in getting that data in a structured way where it's useful to you down the road. Because like, especially with privates, all that stuff's not going to matter for like several years. You're going to be like, sign the docs and they're going to call capital for a long time. Then years and years later, there may or may not be an issue. When you showed up at Wisconsin, how did you implement your approach to these operations processes? There was a transition to a new system and in order to get it ready for a data warehouse approach, similar to what we did at WashU. Similar to a lot of places, I'm sure where you have teams that are organized around different asset classes, using different technology, storing things maybe here or there. Stuff existed, but it took some effort to get things pulled together and uniform. There's much more of a reliance on the custodian for all the performance data and numbers, as opposed to what we do now, which is really own that ourselves. And the custodian is more of a check and balance. I was thinking about investment book of record versus custody book of record and how you think about that. To any custodian who may or may not listen to this, I love you all. And you're great and you're necessary. But when you're on a monthly frequency, that's not very really helpful if you're trying to figure out where exposures are today because there was a large move in the market or an estimate came in and it's not going to get in for two days. There are all sorts of frictions and all sorts of complaints people have in dealing with custodians. Once I brought it in-house and said, well, we'll just record everything as we get it. We'll call it the best information. Our reconciliations became really easy at the end of the month. It's like, we're right, probably. Yeah, sometimes we get it wrong, but like, it's a good check on us. It's almost as if like, when we get around to monthly closes, it's old news. I guess when I came in, maybe this is a buy side thing. I was like, okay, we're going to do reconciliation. I'm like, what are you reconciling to if you don't have a point of view about what things are? It seemed very obvious to me that the first place to go to help yourself is to own your data and then utilize the banking resource as your check and reconciliation. And it's good governance to have a third party calculate performance and want to tie out to that and so on. But it's very hard to do that if you don't have a process internally. How are you booking marks as they come in? may seem like overkill for a long-term portfolio, but we take daily proxies for things and say, okay, well, here's what the portfolio looks like. It's a broad side of the barn. It's not any line item, maybe wildly off, but it's the right direction always. It's much, much better place to be than wondering or having to scramble when you really need it. It's just there, like you pay attention to it or not, but you get a better sense of how the portfolio is ebbing and flowing when you have that sort of fidelity. Is that a function of your hedge fund days, that sweat? Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess I grew up where I kind of had a P&L panel on the computer that effectively controlled my heart rate as well, okay. uh, which <laughs> I had to turn off. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it's not really that important for a long-term portfolio. I'd rather not look at the P&L every day, but making sure things are right, it helps to just have your finger on the pulse. Back to the governance question. Do you have a board that oversees this? So the foundation has its own board and there is an investment committee that is 
delegated the authority to oversee investments for the foundation, and that is our governing body. Interestingly here, there's a cadence of three meetings per year, as opposed to what you would normally consider as four. The cadence, I think, for most is fall, kind of late September, October, and then again in December, and then March and May, and then there's a big gap. I think here, we just eliminate that December meeting. What does the agenda look like? A fall meeting is really about looking at the entire preceding fiscal year. So late September, you've got your private marks in for the preceding June 30. So you kind of put a bow tie around performance. You look at what that translates to in terms of compensation or bonuses for the team, kind of get that authorized. In the winter, early spring, you start to tee up any sort of things that may need to get authorized, asset allocation change to guardrails, any sort of IPS changes. Usually at this point, we're kind of tweaking our governance book. Maybe didn't have a fine point on use of futures or something you know, like that. And what we try to do is introduce one meeting before asking for approval. So there's time for discussion and so forth. And usually all things being equal, you like to have that meeting right before the end of the fiscal year or going into the new fiscal year. Let's approve the new set of changes and any sort of delegated authority changes and off we go to the next fiscal year. With board cycle, board reporting becoming such a big deal, is there any automation going on in that space? We tried to do it, being able to build out probably pages that we populate, and that's probably 85% of our board slides or materials. And then we have, obviously, executive summary and commentary on performance. It means you have to have structured data. You have to have that data in-house. We were talking earlier about how the world may be changing, and you just got to throw stuff in a data lake, and it doesn't have to be structured, and it'll figure itself out. We really care about what we own, what the managers own. Another core philosophy here, and it was the way at WashU as well, is looking for more concentration in managers. I mean, portfolios like this, 100 managers, if they all have hundreds of positions, holy hell, that's a lot of positions. Way too much diversification, you know? So we're looking for a manager that has a very concentrated portfolio, very specialized, very much looking at those eggs in their basket. They're the best at looking at those things. We can collect a bunch of those and have still a lot of diversification, but not so much diversification as to just have the market plus a lot of fees. Terribly hard to beat. We want to track how those positions are doing, and not everybody will give you the transparency. We literally have to tease out positions out of some managers via a call or a monthly or quarterly letter where they give some snapshot, but maybe not the complete portfolio. And then we can make some decisions about how to augment the rest of that exposure. But then we have look through. I can tell you what our top names are right now. And that helps us with the modeling about how we're doing it. Like we really know what we own. Like how much do we own of this stock across the portfolio? Has that dialogue changed over time with managers? Absolutely. I intuitively kind of built an infrastructure to support that level of investing capability on the operational side at WashU. And then when Scott Wilson became CIO, that's the way he rolls and it was perfect. So the dialogue with managers that I saw Scott and team have and which Mike has carried over here is about the investment, not about the manager's macro style, bombs style metrics of the portfolio, doing this, that, and the, you know, abstract level away from the actual this is the reason we've invested in this name. Like, 
that's what Scott and team and Mike and team focus on these days is really the investments being made very close to the investments on the earnings calls, going to meet management with the investors. It's real partnership when money's allocated to our external managers. We're really trying to see them regularly and really be open for dialogue, be a good partner, be a source of capital when opportunity arises. In partnering with your CIO, how do you manage those expectations? How do you operationally partner up with them? Most of my friends are CIOs or have been CIOs. So I get along with the type well. I find it endlessly fascinating. It's something that I don't think I'm particularly well-suited to do, which is why I didn't go that direction. But I do know what it takes to do that and love to support it. You get information, you just get it into your system as fast as you can. Organize a process around, this is what you're getting. This is a reasonable amount of time for it to just get into the system. And once it's there, it's there. It's like putting things where they go as efficiently as possible. On things like look-through transparency, it's going to be governed by what they can get from the manager. What's your approach to operational due diligence? So ODD, quickly. What a thankless job if you don't find anything. And if you're someone like me, I just feel like a failure. Like, oh, they're good. I guess I fail. What I do, keep searching until I become paranoid or insane. I've tried to flip that unfulfilling aspect at times of ODD to focus on the opportunity to make a relationship across the table, to learn who the key players are, CFO, COO. You know, I used to be on that side of the table. So what's going on with you? What's bothering you? What are your plans over the next year? And it just serves as a way to triangulate on the relationship even better. Down the road, something happens, that person leaves. You just have another window in on the dynamics that can help with the relationship. So I love it for that aspect. ODD went really haywire during COVID, I got to tell you. I don't know how ODD is done over Zoom. I don't like it. Very happy to get back onto the road. You see so much in an office and with people, dynamics that are just observable, but not so remotely. Delegate ODD to someone on my team. I'm definitely taking the lead on things that are unusual or relationships that I don't know or we don't know. Bill or I have relationships a lot. Trying to bring teammates up the curve on that. Would love to have be increasingly more active on that front. I think it's a good way to get out of the office, get your head away from the computer, talk to people. So much to be learned. What about monitoring? So there's a distinction between what you do when you're bringing it in. But what do you do on an ongoing basis? I personally like to set up Bloomberg alerts on people and organizations. That gets me some regulatory hits. We tend to try to do a lot with managers that we have relationships with. So any new touch point, obviously annually, they usually update things like ADV. So we're processing those, looking for changes. That's a way to get in there. Annual questionnaires asking for any changes to organization, this, that, or the other. And then it's kind of like, I look out in the calendar for any upcoming year and kind of say, like, who haven't we seen for a while? And if it's getting stale, a couple of years or so, where haven't even been on the phone one-on-one or try to work them into a road trip just to get in front of them. But again, in our case, the investment team is so active with the group and travels so much where the touch points are very high across our organization. We feel like we're in the flow there. Thinking about advice to people in the seat or looking to get in a role like yours. Any advice? The network. Find peers that are doing this. If you're in the seat, don't be shy. We've all been in that position of 
being overwhelmed and where do you start, love to pay it back. So that's the resource I would give anybody is an introduction to a relevant peer. And then from there, getting in the club, as it were, looking to break into it. I got to say, like transitioning from the buy side to this side is super interesting because there's a lot that can be transported and it's very valuable to the asset allocated side to have that experience to bring in house. And any advice on managing CIO expectations on the ops side? Under promise, over deliver. Always. <laughs> just given your role, I think there's a, just a question I had is just like, what advice would you give to an emerging manager starting a fund about running the business? Don't skip on operations. <laughs> you can't do it. If your role is becoming too much of an administrator, you don't have a right operational setup. I find like that just gets in the way of investing. Operations role exists to support the investing process. And I think those people that are really passionate about investing don't have much of an interest in how the sausage gets done. They want the right answer at the right time, not spend their time trying to get the data pulled together. Any book or resource that you share with people? Who reads anymore? Uh, book form. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I sure don't. I would love to start reading again. It's really the peers. There are certain Twitter profiles that I would recommend, but any sort of the frauds are good ones to read up on. You know, it's unbelievable what people are up to and what they pull. So anything that can introduce a healthy dose of skepticism into you and keep that alive because it's easy to get lulled into, uh, oh, this is great. They sound great. You know, got to look for the flags. They're not going to be obvious. Well, Sean, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks for your time and We'll talk soon. Okay, Scott. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.